Welcome to Cybersecurity Growth, a show for aspiring and existing cybersecurity leaders. I'm your host, Sean Valley, Executive Director and CISO of Cybersecurity Growth, former Chief Security Officer of Rapid7 and former CISO of Tricentis. I'm also a musician here on Twitch and elsewhere under the name Music by SV, but more on that later. Welcome to episode number six, White House National Cybersecurity Strategy. A little bit of update about what's been going on with me. It's been it's been three weeks since we've had a show. Uh, let me start off with a shout out to our new Twitch followers for those who are live on the Twitch stream. We've had a few followers since last time we went live. And let me give some props to those who have said hello and joined Cybersecurity Growth on Twitch since uh, last time we got together. Looking at some new names, Robert's Tutorials, thank you for the follow. Drew Han, thank you for the follow. Shut up, Sean Gaming. Interesting spelling of the name because it's very much how I spell my name. But thank you for the follow. JHJ444, thank you for the follow. I am Lesuade, thank you for that follow. Tester 89 thank you for the follow. Uh, this one here, uh, CPH Hapez. CP Hapez, I'm thinking about that one. Thank you for the follow. Product Security Group, Prod Sec Group, thank you for that follow. Dr. Sweets, thank you for following. Knucklescar99, thank you for the follow. Tidiane Sar, I'm probably saying that wrong, but thank you so much for the follow. Smurdyakov, probably saying that wrong also, but thank you so much for the follow. Thanks everybody for following, joining live on Twitch, and also those who join after the fact on the YouTube video and in your podcast feeds. Thank you all for contributing, being a part of this new community that we're getting up and running. And for those who are on the video feed, you might be asking, who am I wearing today? This is one of my favorites. This is one of my favorites. This is the uh, the Rapid 7, I guess it's the running jacket. I guess that's what it is. I just think of it as a sweatshirt. But whenever I wear it and someone's like, oh, what's that jacket you have on? I'm like, oh, it's, I mean, it's a Rapid 7 sweatshirt. Uh, I bought it from the Rapid 7 employee store. Um, I bought one for myself and everyone on my team because I thought they were so cool. And it's just so comfortable. So I am wearing Rapid 7 today. It's not a surprise. I got a lot of Rapid 7 swag. Um... What's going on in my life? Uh, snow on the ground, snow white so bright. It's like the end of winter trick happening right now, right? You know, December, January, you're like, oh, the winter's over. It seems like it was pretty easy. And then February shows up. And for us, mid-February, we had snow and a couple, you know, small storms, but just then it's cold and now there's just snow and it doesn't seem to want to go away. Not in my neighborhood, it doesn't. It is what it is. What else is going on with me? I, I do talk about this from time to time. My my hard rock band, yes, no cap. My hard rock band played a concert a couple weeks ago, uh, and we are now live streaming our songwriting on my other Twitch channel, Music by SV. Um, I believe it is always important to have a completely unrelated hobby to what you do Monday through Friday, nine to five, or in our field, Saturday through Saturday, 12 to 12, anyways. 
Um, have you seen the uh, cybersecurity growth TikTok account? It does exist. That's actually what I'm using for my new top news stories and reactions. And that's how we're going to start today. I'm going to flip over to my uh, my TikTok account and uh, take a look at what's going on over there. So let's talk about the top news stories by way of the cybersecurity growth TikTok account. And every week I try to bring up a couple of these. And yes, the cybersecurity growth TikTok account is alive and well. And you can see there's a handful of posts. I just started it uh, a month ago as I decided, let's go figure out what TikTok's all about. So a couple things I added in the news I'm not sure if I posted all of these recently, but a couple weeks ago, um, up Twitter updated their two-factor authentication. Uh, basically, the new approach is uh, we're getting rid of text-based, SMS-based two-factor authentication. Yay! We're all happy about that. Uh, but they didn't actually really get rid of it. What they're doing is is a cost-cutting measure because it's actually expensive to do uh, SMS two-factor uh, two authentication. Uh, you have to pay te telecom companies and third-party companies to kind of manage that. And so it's expensive, and in the Elon Musk world of Twitter, uh, hey, guess what? He turned Twitter into a dumpster fire that doesn't make any money anymore, so he's trying to figure out how to save money. So getting rid of SMS two-factor is great, but they're like, well, we know some people are still going to want it, so what are we going to do? We're going to charge them you know, the $8 a month for Twitter Blue. Uh, here's what I'm telling you. If you want Twitter Blue for whatever reason, to get the check box next to your name, okay. To be able to edit tweets, okay, all right. But do not pay for Twitter Blue to get SMS two-factor authentication. Uh, it is the least secure way of, of two-factor authentication. It is highly susceptible to being easily hacked uh, by SIM card swapping. So do not use Twitter's SMS two-factor authentication just don't use it. And the argument is, well, hey, people want to use it <clears throat> because they don't have smartphones. Hey, guess what? If you are posting to Twitter, you're using a smartphone. Don't use SMS two-factor authentication. Just don't. Do anything but. That's that's what I was talking about in that, uh, in that piece there. Uh, but I have some newer news from... No, not that. Not that. See, I'm still learning how to... How to... Um, how to TikTok. Okay, I'll keep things on mute. Okay, so in the news this week, Veeam, a pretty popular uh, backup and recovery solution, uh, Veeam's got a, uh, a vulnerability in its product. So if you are in IT or if you are in vulnerability management and you know your company is using Veeam, get them this information right now. Let them know, hey, there is a vulnerability in Veeam. Uh, basically, it's a high port in the 9000s that is exposed and uh, uh, hackers can get access to that port and do bad things. And the last thing you want is bad person to have access to your backups. Uh, so if you use Veeam, if your company uses Veeam, go get to IT right now and say, uh, go look at the press release for the vulnerability for Veeam. One last piece of news that I thought was interesting before we get into the meat of the content, uh, the meat of the uh, cast today is around ChatGPT. Seems like I keep talking about them more and more. Are you using ChatGPT? Uh, I'm sure you are in some way, shape, or form. Uh, I have learned just today that there are Chrome extensions for ChatGPT. That doesn't surprise me. And there are malicious Chrome extensions for ChatGPT, which also does not... Uh, surprise me at all. So um, you should take a look. And if uh, there's a ChatGPT uh, plugin, I think it's called Easy Use of ChatGPT, which plugs right into Chrome. 
And uh, this malicious exploit, which does appear to give you access to ChatGPT through the, through the browser, but it also has a little extra special where it's taking your sessions, your other tokens, your keys, and your passwords, um, key, uh, keystroke logging, I believe. So my recommendation is stay away from ChatGPT plugins for your browser. Um, just use ChatGPT in the web browser or use the OpenAI APIs, the official APIs. Uh, keep yourself safe. I would actually say stay away from browser extensions in general unless you completely trust the browser extension maker, right? You may say, oh, I trust ChatGPT. I trust OpenAI. But this plugin that I'm talking about is not made by them. So, you know, you need to trust the maker, not the name. And my friends... That's the news. Just a couple tidbits that I think are important for our audience. And so the, our agenda for the show, our weekly show, we're generally here weekly. We do a little opening, talk about some top news stories that I think will be relevant to our audience. And then we get into the meat of the presentation, which I call Death by Slides, where I'm literally going to bring up a slide presentation and talk us to death. Today's topic is going to be on the White House National Cybersecurity Strategy that just was released last week. And then as we start to wrap up the show today after Death by Slides, we'll get into a section known as What You Listening To? Uh, and if you don't know me, you can probably tell by my surroundings I'm a big old music nerd, and I cannot go a single conversation single conversation without talking about music, and uh, I'll talk about what I'm listening to. And if you are live and in the chat, I would love to hear what you are currently listening to. Bring me something new, and maybe I will bring you something new. And then we'll wrap things up. The show generally lasts about 90 minutes. Our last one from a few weeks ago in security risk management went a little quicker than usual uh, because I was going to see uh, 80 for Brady with my wife. Um, and the, the movie was starting in about 70 minutes from when I started recording the show. And I, if you watch that, that uh, the security risk management show or listen to it, it's like, wow, is he talking fast? Is SV talking really fast? And yes, I was. So... <laughs> We're going to get into the meat of the show right now, Death by Slides. Let's bring it right up on the screen here, and we'll talk about it. If you are in chat, feel free. Please, I encourage you to uh, drop questions, comments in chat. I will take break from time to time to look at the chat. Uh, but now we're going to go to school, and I'm bringing up the old Google slide deck to walk through this new thing known as the White House National Cybersecurity Strategy and bring it straight from the fact sheet that came from Joe Biden's office. And I'm also going to bring some commentary from some industry experts who I trust and listen to and also bring some of my own uh, commentary as well. So first up, what is this thing? And you'll see some things on the screen here. And uh, I'm going to read some items right from the fact sheet. And so here's the announcement from March 1st. Today, the Biden-Harris administration released the National Cybersecurity Strategy to secure the full benefits of a safe and secure digital ecosystem for all Americans. In this decisive decade, the United States will reimagine cyberspace as a tool to achieve our goals in a way that reflects our values, economic security, and prosperity. 
respect for human rights and fundamental freedoms, trust in our democracy and democratic institutions, and an equitable and diverse society. To realize this vision, we must make fundamental shifts in how the United States allocates roles, responsibilities, and resources in cyberspace. And other than the word cybersecurity that's written in this, I'm like, why the hell are we talking about this? But it is what it is. Um, so what is this thing? It's a 40-page document from the White House, which calls it a blueprint for keeping uh, the nation's computers, servers, and the lines in between safe from hackers. And so, yeah, it's focused on government, like the private, uh, the, the public sector. And so I'm going to go through this as it's written. And then towards the end, we'll start getting into what, what about the pub, the private sector? What about all the businesses that are not government? So we'll, we'll get into that as well. So the strategy overview as signed by the, by the one and only Joe Biden couple things I pulled right from this. Number one, we must rebalance the responsibility to defend cyberspace by shifting the burden for cybersecurity away from individuals, small businesses, and local governments and onto the organizations that are most capable and best positioned to reduce risks for all of us. So uh, commentary on this. They're saying, okay, those of us who are at home using our Gmail or our Outlook 365 and are getting spam and phishing emails to us saying, not on us anymore, okay? Small businesses, you know, your mom and pops, your your pizza shops, your, your workout gyms, you know, your small businesses, maybe your small tech startups, okay? And then uh, they're saying, hey, we don't want local town and state governments to... to bear the burden because those smaller, less secure organizations are feeling the brunt. They are getting hit daily uh, and don't have the resources. Okay. So they're saying um, those who are best positioned. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Moving on to bullet number two. Uh, we we must realign incentives to favor long-term investments by striking a careful balance between defending ourselves against urgent threats today and simultaneously strategically planning for and investing in a resilient future. The strategy recognizes that government must use all tools of national power in a coordinated manner to protect our national security, public safety, and economic prosperity. That comes right from the strategy and the fact sheet. So they're saying, hey, the little guys, we got you. And um, it, as I hear it, we're saying big government has you or, or needs to take a step forward uh, in looking out for the whole rest of the company as well as big, um, big private sector. Okay. Uh, I'm going to bring some comments from friends from industry. Jason Chan made a comment here, and I'm going to bring more of Jason Chan up uh, later on. Uh, I'll talk about who he is, but just a comment he made here um, on one of his posts online. Jason says, the strategy's context shouldn't be surprising, but it does provide an up-to-date shared understanding of the environment in which we're operating. Security leaders can leverage this information to bring their leadership and companies up to speed with the current landscape and trends we're dealing with in cyber. In brief, we're seeing increasing connectivity, increasing complexity, increasing resilience on digital technology, and increasingly connected sensitive functions and data. 
Our adversaries are well-resourced and advancing while their tools and means are becoming more widely accessible. Sophisticated and resourced nations like China, Russia, Iran, and the DPRK continue to pose a serious threat. Thank you, Jason. We'll come back to some of your commentary uh, in just a moment, but I'm going to move on. So that gives us an idea of what the strategy overview is as signed by Joe Biden's desk on March 1st. Very fresh content. So let's look at the vision of this thing a little bit here. And I brought the table of contents, as you can see, 40-page document broken up into five pillars for those who are looking to get involved in this uh, and implement it. And coming right from the fact sheet, here are the details. Our rapidly evolving world demands a more intentional, more coordinated, and more well-resourced approach to cyber defense. We face a complex threat environment with state and non-state actors developing and executing novel campaigns to threaten our interests. At the same time, next-generation technologies are reaching maturity at an accelerating pace, creating new pathways for innovation while increasing digital interdependencies. The strategy sets out a path to address these threats and secure the promise of our digital future. Its implementation will protect our investments in rebuilding America's infrastructure, developing our clean energy sector, and reshoring America's technology and manufacturing base. Together with our allies and partners, the United States will make our digital ecosystem, and here are three bullets that they state, defensible, resilient, and values aligned. Defensible, where cyber defense is overwhelmingly easier, cheaper, and more effective. Hmm. Resilient, where cyber incidents and errors have little widespread or lasting impact. And values aligned, where our most cherished values shape and are in turn reinforced by our digital world. The administration has already taken steps to secure cyberspace and our digital ecosystem, including the National Security Strategy Executive Order 14028, which is known as Improving the Nation's Cybersecurity, uh, the National Security Memorandum Number 5, which is also known as Improving Cybersecurity for Critical Infrastructure Controls, and M2209, which is known as Moving the U.S. Government Toward Zero Trust Cybersecurity Principles, and National Security Memorandum 10, which is known as Promoting United States Leadership in Quantum Computing While Mitigating Risks to Vulnerable Cryptographic, cryptographic Systems. Expanding on these efforts, the strategy recognizes that cyberspace does not exist for its own end, but as a tool to pursue our highest aspirations. A lot of stuff there. Uh, I'm going to get into some more of these details later on when I get into a section like, what do we do about this stuff? Um... They talk about zero trust. I did a show on zero trust just a few weeks ago. You go back a couple episodes uh, where I, I unveil and uncover this mystical uh, thing known as zero trust uh, through the eyes of many experts. But moving on with the strategy, the approach here. Um, the, the strategy seeks to build and enhance collaboration around five pillars. And I have the five pillars right on the slide here. Defend critical infrastructure. Disrupt and dismantle threat actors. Shape market forces to drive security and resilience. Invest in a resilient future. And five, forge international partnerships to pursue shared goals. So critical infrastructure. Keep in mind, critical infrastructure is generally not owned by the government. <laughs> Keep in mind, right? If you think about most critical infrastructure, it's owned by a private entity. 
uh, disrupt and dismantle threat actors. I think we're all on this mission together and shaping market forces to drive security and resilience. Market forces, that's interesting. We, you know, the cybersecurity market. Invest in a resilient future, sure. International partnerships. So again, you know, let's get five eyes and more friends working together. All right, interesting. So there's the approach of the strategy. Now getting into a section, the the five pillars. We're going to get into the five pillars, right? I just mentioned the five pillars under approach. Let's go into a little detail of the five pillars now. The first of the five pillars, defend critical infrastructure. We will give the American, and this comes right from, right from the fact sheet of the cybersecurity strategy. We will give the American people confidence in the availability and resilience of our critical infrastructure and the essential services it provides, including by, and here's three bullets they mention, expanding the use of minimum cybersecurity requirements in critical sectors to ensure national security and public safety and harmonizing regulations to reduce the burden of compliance. A uh, second bullet is enabling private public collaboration at the speed and scale necessary to defend critical infrastructure and essential services. So, you know, get the get the Googles, get the Amazons, get the Microsofts, get the Apples, get the Palo Altos. Let's get all the big players working together supporting the government efforts, working with the government. And then the third bullet, defending and modernizing federal networks and updating federal incident response policy. It's funny hearing this because I was thinking uh, just yesterday, you know, there was a time where I did some work uh, in the private, in the public sector without going into any specific details of where and for whom. And you know, this this group in the public sector was using some McAfee endpoint security, you know, centralized McAfee endpoint security stuff and um, for like host related security. I feel like they still are, by the way. And, uh, you know, get an example of uh, modern. Um, I'm not so sure things are super modern. I mean, things are in some cases, but I do think um, it takes, you know, two plus years to bring something into you know, the public sector agencies. Uh, that's how long it takes to uh, acquire solutions just because of the red tape that's involved. So modernizing the networks, the tough part is how do you modernize something when it takes a, takes a minimum of two years to make any change? Uh, so I like the bullet, but I've lived the reality. The second item in the... Uh, if I go back into the approach, the second item of the approach is defend and dismantle threat actors. And here's what it says in the strategy. Using all instruments of national power, we will make malicious cyber actors incapable of threatening the national security or public safety of the United States, including by, and here's three bullets, here's three bullets on this one here. First one is strategically empowering all tools of national power to disrupt adversaries. This is strong. Some strong language here. I like this. I like this, Mr. Biden, President Biden. I like this. Second bullet, engaging the private sector in disruption activities through scalable mechanisms. And the third bullet, addressing the ransomware threat through a comprehensive federal approach in a lockstep with our international partners. So I love ransomware's in this. Like, it's about time, guys. This has been, I mean, 
Steve Gibson's been talking about ransomware for like seven years now. And it's like, it's not going to get, it's never going to get better. It's just going to get worse, get more advanced. Um, love to see this written in. Obviously, it needs to be a reality. We know that our compliance folks are now asking about this. Our cyber insurers are raising their rates and they're asking about this on an annual basis. Uh, it's about time that at the government level, it's being taken and written into strategy. About freaking time. Let's look at the third piece of this uh, approach here. Shape market forces to drive security resilience. And from the strategy, here's the language. We will place responsibility on those within our digital ecosystem that are best positioned to reduce risk and shift the consequences of poor cybersecurity away from the most vulnerable in order to make our digital ecosystem more trustworthy, including by, and here comes the three bullets, promoting privacy and the security of personal data. Okay, good. So security awareness. Second bullet, shifting liability for software products and services to promote secure development practices. Hallelujah. Let's, let's focus a whole lot more on the software development life cycle. Shift left, as they say. I don't like shifting left, to, to be honest. Uh, if I, I, I've said this before. If I shift left, doesn't that mean I'm taking away stuff from the right? I still need my defenders and responders, so I can't shift my team left. I just have to grow the responsibilities. So I don't like shifting I will say it loudly, uh, but I just have to spend more time over in the product side, more, more in the development side. Love to see this written out. And then the third bullet, ensuring that federal grant programs promote investments in new infrastructure that are secure and resilient. So what I hear is we're going to raise taxes to give the smaller businesses more federal dollars to protect themselves. Uh, we do need to protect the little guy uh, because they don't have the money. They don't have the resources. And so... I am supportive of pretty much everything I see here. And if I look at the key language here, place the responsibility within our digital ecosystem um, to those that are best positioned to reduce the risk. And this is saying like, hey, we need to partner. I'm making this up now. We're, we need to partner with CrowdStrike. We need to partner uh, with Mandiant. We need to partner with the industry leaders. We need to partner with Microsoft and Google and Amazon uh, to support the those who are being hurt the most hospitals schools small districts think about how you know school systems are now being attacked and their data is being leaked publicly by the scum of the earth you know we need to be able to, to protect these who don't have the money the resources to protect themselves they do not and we are on an a completely interconnected world we decided as a human race to go down this path of let's connect everything. Let's go on the internet with everything. And um, the problem is like we're basically tying all of our houses together, all of our workplaces together. And, um, you know, there's a shared bridge. Come on in. Come on in. Anybody can come into my house. Sure, why not? Um, it's about time where I see our government at least taking a written stance into what's next. So what's the next step in the approach? Invest in a resilient future. Invest in a resilient future. And from the fact sheet, this is what it says. Through strategic investments and coordinated collaborative action, the United States will continue to lead the world in the innovation of secure and resilient next generation technologies 
in infrastructure, including by, and here comes the three bullets, reducing systemic technical vulnerabilities in the foundation of the internet and across the digital ecosystem while making it more resilient against transnational digital repression. So I'm hearing we got to fix BGP, we got to fix IPv4 and get rid of it. Um, we need to fix IPv6, get everybody on it, and other types of technical controls. Just thinking about like, how do we get rid of the old stuff? How do we get rid of old SSL? How do we get rid of old TLS? I'm just thinking out loud as I read this. Second bullet, prioritizing cybersecurity R&D for the next generation technologies such as post-quantum encryption, digital identity solutions, and clean energy infrastructure. I mean, I, the R&D is happening. There's many orgs that are spending time and money on these things, so we are doing that. Uh, third bullet, developing a diverse and robust national cyber workforce. Well, I think that is well underway. A lot of opportunity for growth in this space here. Hiring managers, by the way, um, hire people with no experience. You should do that. Hire people who are hungry and want to be in this space. Stop looking for the unicorns. Stop looking for the people that, you know, you need five years of experience. Get people in who are, you know, fill, fill those jobs. We're in a weird time right the second. I mean, how many people have lost their jobs who are in tech and in cyber in the last year? I'm one of them. Full-time job just went away. Been trying to figure out where the next one is. Been doing interesting work in the meantime. Got to do these shows, which is fantastic. Uh, so we're in a weird time right now, but there are still tons of open jobs. Um, hiring's a little bit slower. Uh, and in the expectations from hiring managers are always just 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 too high. Uh, lower those lower those expectations. Get some junior folks in who are hungry, who love to tinker, who you know you, you got you think you need your technical people, but you also need your business people in cybersecurity. People who are going to run your GRC programs or more your you know, your business focus and get your technical people doing a little IT security, a little little SecOps, a little security operations. Maybe get some of your more hands-on technical people over in the AppSec and the ProdSec space. Anyways, the next item here and the last one in the approach is forge international partnerships to pursue shared goals. And the language from the fact sheet is the United States seeks a world where responsible state behavior in cyberspace is expected and reinforced and where irresponsible behavior is isolating and costly, including by leveraging international coalitions and partnerships among like-minded nations to counter threats to our digital ecosystem through joint preparedness, response, and cost imposition. Work with our friends. Don't stay isolated, U.S. And, you know, as a myself, as a person who works in cybersecurity, at, at one point an engineer, and then a manager, and then a, a leader. I'd say in my early part of my career, it was all about like, keep to yourself, you know, be secretive, don't let people know what you're doing. And and I have torn those walls down. And I tell all my colleagues and friends, go meet your peers. You know, if you say you work at a CRM company, go and you're in a security role, Go meet your colleagues at a competing CRM company. Talk, talk security. Talk, you know, because you're gonna have similar, similar concerns. You know, if you work at a uh, an e-commerce company, go talk to your colleagues, your peers, people in the exact same job as you at another e-commerce company. That's what I'm saying. Go, go to talk to your industry peers, learn from them, share from them. Obviously, you're not gonna share your company's secrets. But the way you're doing protections, likely you're going to be the same. You're trying to protect yourself the same way each other is. Learn from one another. 
And as myself, as a security leader, you know, got into the CISO level roles, what do I do? I network with my CISOs on a daily basis, my industry colleagues, hundreds and hundreds on a regular basis, daily basis. Uh, so that's what we're saying here. Go work with your friends. And of course, if I think about it from the seat of the president of the United States, who's their peer? Other presidents around the world. So yay, go network with your partners, work with them. The second bullet here, went on a little tirade there, my bad. Second bullet here, increasing the capacity of our partners to defend themselves against cyber threats, both in peacetime and in crisis. So those who are in some type of global team, it's so funny, I've been watching Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and all of I think of is the, um, what are the Accords? I forget what it's called, uh, the Wachovia Accords? I think that's what it is. <laughs> Um, making sure that the uh, the Avengers um, are are working peacefully and the Inhumans are not acting up. I've been watching way too much Marvel. Anyways, how do we work together with our partners when things are quiet and then also when things are um, in unrest? Third bullet, working with our allies and partners to make secure, reliable, and trustworthy global supply chains for information and communications technology and operational technology products and services. Um, we have a global supply chain problem. Uh, I remember learning about this 10 years ago, coming to learn that chips inside of certain computers uh, were being impacted during the physical development of the chips. And the, the, the understanding was foreign nations were injecting stuff into computer chips before they were being shipped off to computer manufacturers and those things that were being injected were allowing the ability for a foreign uh, adversary to be able to gather information while computers were in use and sent back to um, a foreign nation, an adversary in a sense. So my understanding is those things are real, right? And we've also seen more recently supply chain, right? Someone hacks into GitHub and finds ways to inject uh, malicious code into legitimate software in GitHub. We've seen recently LastPass being hacked. I do not believe we've seen the end of LastPass hacks. Um, I do believe that not only someone got into LastPass and you know took uh, took the vaults, but curious to see you know if we will learn that somebody actually gets into LastPass code and does bad things. You know, I'm, I'm just making things up at the moment. The supply chain risk is real. Uh, I've seen it in uh, in reality. Um, and uh, I like to see it written here. Happy to see it. Glad to see that it's you know on paper. The third bullet here, working with our allies and partners to make secure, reliable, and trustworthy global supply chains for information and communications technology and operational technology products and services to wrap up the um this approach coordinated by the office of the national Cybersecurity director the administration's implementation of this strategy is already underway so the office of the national cyber director i think that's a new office by the way um the office of the national cyber director has now taken the strategy and saying what do we do about it that's the intro to what this thing is and those are the five steps of the approach. Okay. 
interesting. Before I move on, I'm not done. We're not done yet. Before we move on, just taking a sip of my hot coffee in my advanced cybersecurity center coffee mug. The ACSC, not the Australian ACSC, but the Boston ACSC. We're going to talk now, we're going to leave the strategy and get into more of the focus of reality. All right, so this strategy is saying a few things, but it is directed at government. And so I'm thinking government agencies, federal government agencies, Department of Defense, those types of things. And it does mention you know, public and private partnerships. But I look at it as like, hey, government, you have to do this. And government players, <clears throat> you need to figure out how to go work with the private sector, but not necessarily saying like, hey, private sector, you actually have to do anything. So what about the private sector? What about private businesses? And when I say private business, you can be publicly traded on the stock market and still be a private business. That's not what I mean by private sector is non-government. Just, just make sure that you understand what I'm getting at here. One of my friends out in security land, Kurt Sauer, he and I worked together at uh, Salesforce a few years back. We stay in touch pretty regularly. Kurt Sauer had some deep thoughts on LinkedIn this week, and um, I decided to steal his thoughts. I'm going to read from what Kurt said, because Kurt took a took a review of the strategy, kind of like I did, except for me. I'm literally just like reading the strategy and learning as we go. Kurt went a little deeper in it. I'm going to read what Kurt said here. And so Kurt says, according to the new national cybersecurity strategy, coordinated efforts by federal and non-federal entities have effectively frustrated malicious threat actors. But what makes efforts among these entities, quote, coordinated? The strategy creates a beachhead in Strategic Objective 2.2, which is known as Enhanced Public-Private Operational Collaboration to Disrupt Adversaries, right? We talked about that as I went through the overview. Uh, so the strategy creates a beachhead, but it leaves us with scant details on how this coordination might take place. This is kind of, a, you know, Kurt is kind of aligning with my thought, like, hey, how are you going to do this, dude? So Kurt continues on by saying, prompted by the attacks of 9-11 in 2001, which was followed shortly thereafter by Katrina, uh, Hurricane Katrina in 2005, emergency management agencies at all levels recognize the significant challenges in resolving large-scale catastrophes. To cope with this, in 2004, the federal government established the National Incident Management System, or NIMS, an organization structure intended to op optimize coordination of physical and human resources during the response and to ensure clear lines of communication among disparate agencies who have come together to resolve a catastrophe. He continues on, Adherence to the NIMS methodology is nearly universal in the United States, in part because its use is typically mandated in order for states and municipalities to qualify for federal disaster assistance. Ah, to get federal disaster assistance, you need to use MIMS. Got it. That's my little take on what he says. Okay. Continuing on. 
a core element of NIMS, the Incident Command Center, ICS, Incident Command Center, provides a standardized approach to the command, control, and coordination of on-scene incident management. Together, NIMS and ICS ensure that incidents can be managed with minimal political or jurisdictional conflict, that capabilities can be quickly identified, a process called resource typing, and then resources can be added to or released from a response in a coordinated fashion. Kurt put some thought into this. Dang, Kurt. Good job. Uh, but I'm not done. He's not done. He continues on saying, within the United States, the most critical infrastructure is owned and operated by private companies and, then, and therefore have had no obligation to adopt the NIMS or ICS methodologies. Mm. Mm. Kind of talked about this earlier. Critical infrastructure isn't owned by the government, so they do whatever they want. I'm continuing on with Kurt's thoughts here. Yet, in many cases, the public welfare demands that response to attacks on critical infrastructure be standardized in a way that allows for a coordinated response to a worst-case scenario. And I'm going to wrap up Kurt's thoughts here with his final, final thoughts here. If we consider how much the fields of cyber resilience and cybersecurity have grown since NIMS was first introduced, it seems amazing how little research exists on how ICS could be used to improve the response effectiveness of private sector and public-private partnered incidents response in the face of a significant sustained cyber attack. While the NIMS of today is no panacea for cyber incident response, many questions remain unanswered in such as intel sharing and how best to federate united command structures to include private sector organizations. It provides a great starting point for bringing private sector capabilities to bear against the real and growing threat of cyber physical attacks. And to that, Kurt, I say amen. That's why I brought Kurt's entire uh, small book, if you will, uh, into today's show. I'm, if I'm thinking about this, Deep Thoughts by Kurt Sauer is where where this happened today. And um, he, he brought up probably the biggest thing. It's like, yeah, critical infrastructure needs to be protected, but yet those who own critical infrastructure, which are not the government in almost all cases, do not need to follow any type of government strategy. So the thought is like, Maybe we need some enforcement. Maybe we need some enforcement in the private sector versus just saying, we need to collaborate. Kurt, thank you for that. I appreciate you sharing sharing that with us and um, putting your deep thoughts there. I appreciate it. So I think that's really, really great stuff. What do we actually do with this information? Right, we got this strategy, this cool document that came out, and the cyber leaders of the world are all excited. New, you know, new cyber stuff coming from the White House. It is very cool. But what, like, what do we do with this information? I grabbed some info from fellow cyber friend Jason Chan, and I also put his his photo and his LinkedIn title on here. I love this, Jason Chan retired, not looking for work, not buying anything. I do love his title. Uh, Jason Chan uh, formerly led Netflix uh, security. Uh, a stellar job there, but also just a really, really great advocate for this industry. And what's crazy, he left Netflix and he did quote in quote unquote retire. Uh, he's doing, in my opinion, a terrible job in retirement. 
I mean, yes, he's not working a full-time job, but he is not not quiet at all or giving up in the world of the cybers. Jason's awesome. He really cares about the space. He has lots of deep thoughts. Um, and he started to think about like, okay, what do we do about this? And he wrote some great words as well. He wrote a whole, uh, a whole semi book on LinkedIn as well. And I'm going to read right from some areas that Jason wrote because I thought it was really interesting. Um, and a lot of these align with either comments I made earlier or in previous shows. So Jason says, has taken, like, what do we do about this? What does the private sector do? Well, just what do we do about this? Any of us that are in our different areas. And Jason says we need um, several areas, four areas of key investment. You see them on here. Threat intelligence, incident response, regulatory compliance, and software supply chain and development practices. And going into each of these four areas of where to invest. So now I'm speaking to, as I'm reading this, I'm speaking to you, the cybersecurity leader, which is who this show is for, coming out of the strategy, there's four areas to invest based on the strategy. Threat intelligence, says Jason Chan. The ability to operationalize intake and sharing, both detailed, like IOCs and TTPs, and higher level security intelligence, right? Really doing something with threat intelligence. At the top of this list, it's not an area that we do well, like most of us, we grab our threat intelligence by one of our cybersecurity vendors, you know, our CrowdStrikes, our IBMs, our Palo Altos, our Rapid7s, whatever. You know, we grab our threat intel from them and just kind of like feed it into our machine and we use it some way. But how do we operationalize this threat intelligence? Like, how do we invest in this? Let's get threat intelligence from our friends, from our partners, from our vendors and find a way to actually make action of it. We've been we've been gathering threat intelligence uh, almost as long as I've been in cybersecurity, at least since you know the 2010s, we've been doing threat intelligence. In the mid-2010s, it, it really ratcheted up. Second bullet, incident response. Jason writes, create robust, detailed, and transparent post-incident reports of the incidents your organization experiences and the capability to quickly integrate learnings from external incidents. Here's what I take on what Jason wrote. First of all, yes, I will just say yes. But what I look at is create a template that you and your incident response team will always use. If you don't have a definitive template of your post-incident response reports, just get one. Go, go talk to one of your auditors. Go talk to one of your cybersecurity leaders at another company or your incident response managers, your SOC directors and say, hey, give me your template for incident response. Give me your template for what you do during an incident and then give me your template for your post-incident report. Your friends will share your their templates with you. They want to help if you don't have one. If you have one, freaking use it. Um, but more important, robust, detailed, and transparent. Why? Because we're going to share these freaking reports outside of the company. We need to share with our friends. We need to share with industry. We need to share with our partners. We need to share with our customers. It is the world we live in. I know many of us got into cyber and the idea was like, don't tell anyone about the incidents. And like literally LastPass was doing this like four months ago. Don't tell anyone about the incidents. And now look at them. They look like a bunch of buffoons. That is not the world we live in. Incident response needs to be transparent. It is the world we live in. Cyber leaders, get it into the heads of your business leaders. This is what we need to do. Or just go find another job. You need. We need to be transparent. Love this writing, Jason. Um, yes, uh, this one pains me and uh, speaking harsh on it with you. 
Third bullet, regulatory compliance. Jason writes, providing consumable data about your organization's compliance with various regulatory regimes, as well as being able to intake and act upon the same data from your partners, suppliers, and other entities upon which you rely. Okay, so I'm reading this as do your compliance stuff. And here's what I like, consumable data about your compliance. Yeah, let me think about this for a second, right? You get an ISO 27001 report. In the end, you get a report, if you do ISO 27001, you get a report and then you get a certificate. And then what do we do? We share the certificate that says, I am ISO, certi- ISO 27001 certified with you know customers who ask for it, our enterprise customers in many cases. But we don't share the report. That's internal. And we don't have anything to actually share, you know, really the details of how well we did. And so what I'm taking from this is provide useful data from compliance. Don't just share the stupid certificate that doesn't actually give any detail. Yes, ISO 27000 is very rigorous and it is actually relatively tough to pass. But provide something of use to your customers who are like, yeah, but tell us a little bit more, like, you know, a little bit more detail of the scope. SOC 2 actually helps there. Right, the SOC 2 report um, is an actual very detailed report. And I find it, in many cases, it, it provides a lot of content, sometimes too much. I think SOC 2 reports are insane. Right, They can be 50 to 200 pages long. Ain't no one got time to read that SOC 2 report. So maybe boil it down. And for customers who are like, I want your SOC 2 report. Like, here, dude, here my, have my 80-page report. But also, here's my one-pager that says what we really did goes back to the transparent part of incident response but let's do that with compliance too make that a project take your uh, iso 27001 certificate and make a one-pager report that you can give to your customers like what what we really did take your SOC 2 80 page report or 200 page report and create a one-pager from your SOC 2 etc etc create a one-pager of these different things share them openly and easily with your customers be great if they're Easily accessible right from the security page on your company's website that a customer uh, could click a button, request access, you know, again, sign the uh, the NDAs as needed and get access to those reports. The last item that Jason mentions here on where to invest is software supply chain and development practices. And he writes... Software supply chain security has been top of mind for the industry for the past several years, and the strategy increasingly highlights and prioritizes these initiatives. You should be developing increased visibility into and oversight of your development process, including external dependencies, commercial, and open source. I find this one interesting because I've worked, I guess I've worked in the app sec space for a while. 2008, I guess, I got into the application security space. So for me, it's like, I've been doing this for a long time. and uh, But we still have a long ways to go. Uh, software supply chain, you know, the SolarWinds issue, the um, Kaseya issue, they were s- software supply chain issues. Um, so these large companies are having issues with software supply chain as recent as, you know, two years ago. And many others still are. Uh, make the software development lifecycle a critical part of your cybersecurity program, maybe even the number one. It's always been 
in my opinion, you if you look at kind of the order of priority from a cybersecurity framework, whether it's the CIS critical security controls or ISO 27001, you know, application security and product security are listed in those, but why are they always far down the list? Why aren't they at the top? Uh, it's always been like a, a, an order of maturity in product security and application security. Yes, very important in all of these um, regiments, uh, frameworks, but never number one and never at the top. And I look at my security leaders, uh, they'll focus on to start, right? You have to start somewhere when you're building a security program, maturing a security program. You know, they talk about um, um, devices, assets, vulnerabilities, endpoint security, log management. Yeah, and at some point after that, application and product security. Maybe bring that crap to the top. <laughs> bring it to the top. Um, if you're developing software, which just about everybody is nowadays, um, stop letting your software go out without having oversight. Just like, you know, if you think about it, we don't generally let IT stuff go out without oversight. We should not allow software to go out without oversight. So think of your software just like IT. You're not going to give a new employee a laptop without your endpoint security tool, without your vulnerability, you know, your vulnerability scanner. Uh, without your, you know, antivirus or whatever you're using to replace antivirus these days, right? You're not going to give them that. You're not going to give them a laptop without some type of password uh, password policy built into that laptop. You just, you're not. Why would you ever let a piece of software go live without having the critical basic capabilities there, having that oversight in? And, and one reason is there's not enough for me to go around, so I focus over here. And the frameworks say, start here, and the other ones we'll get to later. Um, just flip it on its head. Software can't go out just like IT can't go out without basic oversight and basic controls in place. Thank you, Jason, for where to invest. Appreciate this. Love that you wrote this up. And, and again, just shared a couple days ago, so so good. But we're not done, right? Where to invest. Um, Jason goes on and talks a little bit more about continuing to focus things you should have been focusing on and you should continue to focus on and he has four items in here zero trust compliance and audit automation understanding your environment and the supply chain and finally data governance and i like how jason writes continue to focus because what as i look at it here is he's saying you're already doing this stuff right man you're already doing this stuff uh so continue to focus on these things I do know a lot of my friends aren't doing this um, because, again, there's so much to do in the world of cybersecurity. I have a little excerpt that I put at the top right of this slide. And the reason why I put this in here was a reminder that just a few weeks ago, I did an entire show on zero trust. So if you want to go back into the cybersecurity growth archives, uh, there is the live stream, there is the YouTube video, and there is the podcast where I dive deep for about 90 minutes into the world of zero trust. So if you are still in the early stages and need to learn a little bit more, go back a couple episodes and it'll be there. So Jason talks about these four areas. I'm going to get into his thoughts on these with a little commentary. First of zero trust. Jason says, the federal government is moving toward zero trust architecture and I'd argue that much of what we've learned in the past several decades of cybersecurity is showing this is the right direction for defenders. The faster you can adopt and adapt, the more defensible your organization will be. Yeah. 
go back and watch my show on Zero Trust. I'm not saying my <laughs> content is the only way. So when I did my show on Zero Trust, I actually went through a whole bunch of industry leaders. Microsoft's in there. NIST is in there. The NSA is in there. I brought thoughts from other leaders um, to get their take on it. The second bullet Jason talks about here is compliance and audit automation. And he writes, external regulation and compliance pressure from government, industry, customers, partners, etc. has only increased over time. And forward-looking teams are investing in automating evidence collection, control testing, and documentation in other areas of their GRC program. So Jason's forward-thinking comment here is not about doing and running a GRC program. He's well past it. He's like, you're, you're, you already are doing a GRC program. You have dedicated GRC folks. What he's saying is those who are leading the pack are trying to figure out where and how to automate much of your GRC work. Do you have tools in place that are actually monitoring for regular compliance? For example, in the world of cloud, right? If you have a cloud security posture management tool, that most likely has compliance reports built into it. So you can see, are people complying with our um, with our security requirements as as written in like so the SOC two or as written in ISO twenty seven thousand one? Uh, a lot of your security tools, your CrowdStrike tools, actually have compliance reports built into them. So in the, the sense of automating compliance, look at your tools that you do security stuff with and find the compliance section. And those people who are doing your GRC work, get them in there uh, and <clears throat> have them continue to use those tools for um, identifying where there are gaps and then also you know, bring your technical folks into your GRC team to say, hey, now that we can see where the technical gaps are, how do we automate fixing those gaps? Again, if I think about cloud security tools, the cloud security posture management space has the ability to auto-remediate things. For example, if you're using AWS for software development and your developers typically spin up infrastructure, your cloud security posture management tool can automatically block that unapproved infrastructure from ever connecting to the network. Or if your uh, engineers are spinning up S3 buckets and making them public for one reason or another, your S a CSPM tool can put an auto-blocking rule saying, hey, you cannot make data publicly accessible without going through change management, and you can auto-block it. Leverage the reports that are in your security tools. Leverage your security tools to ensure your environments are auto-complying. Thank you, Jason. The third bullet here, understanding your environment in the supply chain. Jason writes, this feels obvious, but is anything but easy. I'd include functions like asset and attack surface management, third-party risk, and general ecosystem risk in this category. Security is all about context, and the more you know about the estate you are protecting, the more you'll effective. Uh, the more you know about the estate you're protecting, the more effective you'll be. Understanding your environment and supply chain. Right, yeah. Sounds obvious, but it is it is kind of tough. Um, there's code everywhere. If I think about code, right, when I was writing Java code 20 years ago, a lot of my code at the top, you know, I'd be importing third-party libraries just because, I'm like, oh, I don't need to write this code if I import the third-party library. There's the third-party code. And, I'm like, who's who wrote that third-party library? 
I don't know, but it, but it makes my, my piece of software work. So it's tough. This is a tough space. More tools are coming out to help us here, but it's, you know, realizing like I was, uh, I was working with a company a couple years ago and, um, I was asking the product teams and the product security team members, hey, how much, you know, it was a software company and, you know, we write our own software. We have all of our custom software that we sell to our customers. How much of the code, you know, in your assessment, how much of the code of our products is internally written, like, you know, typed by hand versus third-party code that we import from libraries? And I was shocked and my eyes jumped out of my head when I heard 70 percent of our code 70 I think he may have said up to 80 but I'm just going to stop at 70 70 percent of our code is third-party libraries of all of our code only 30 percent of it is custom code and so I'm like oh it's interesting because we were just about to invest a whole lot of money in SAST static application security testing which is tools for testing your first party custom code like your Vera codes and other tools like that um, fortify back in the day still exists he's like yeah 70 percent of our code is third-party libraries like stuff we don't write stuff we bring in from other companies other developers and I'm like cool cool who writes that 70 percent of stuff and i know the answer i don't know i don't know who writes that stuff we just use it that's just how it is that's how we get the cool look and feel of our site uh, you know we put our own little spin on the top of it but most of the capabilities of our software is by something someone else wrote and that's when I said, well, maybe we don't invest in SAST first. We actually um, focus on our open source security libraries. You know, tools like Sneak, uh, we're, we're really strong in that space. Um, GitHub acquired a tool and rolled it into the, the GitHub tools. And, and, and uh, there are a couple other players out there in that space. Maybe we focus on our open source or our third-party libraries first because that seems to be the largest um, area of uh, of attack, potential attack. Again, understanding your environment is key. <laughs> I had to understand our environment before we figured where to invest first um, to get the most of it. The last bullet from Jason here on data governance. Data rights. I said data rights. No, we're not on Star Trek, the next generation. I'm not talking about data. I'm talking about Jason. And Jason writes, what data do you have? Where is it? How is it protected? And who has access? Such simple questions that are incredibly challenging to answer in large and dynamic environments. Investing in answering these questions confidently is always a good investment and certainly supported by the strategy. What data do you have? Where is it? How is it protected? Who has access? Beautiful. Jason, beautiful. For all of you who are trying to figure out and scratching your head saying... Uh, data governance, yeah, I keep saying in compliance we kind of do it, and when I look at it, we don't really have anything done. Just write these four things down and start getting into it. You know, go make a project for next quarter, your data governance project, if you don't already have one. And answer these four questions. What data do you have? Where is it? How is it protected? And who has access? Start with a spreadsheet. Have these as your your columns, each question, and then the rows uh, are the different data. You know, you're like, oh, I found data lives in Google Drive. 
you can start with big Google Drive and then you probably break it down into more things. Uh, data lives in Salesforce. Uh, data lives in Workday. Data lives in NetSuite. You know, the different rows could be where data lives. Uh, data lives in AWS. Maybe that's going to be broken into a whole lot more different AWS accounts. Data lives in Azure. You know, data lives in GCP. Uh, data data lives. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. We still have some servers over in the closet in the data center. Oh, yeah, data lives in there, too. Data lives in Active Directory. Data lives in Okta. Have the different pieces of data as rows and have these four things as columns. What data do you have? Where is it? How is it protected? Who has access? Start there. Build that sheet. And now you can start to think about what do we do about this information? Start there. Continue investing in data governance. We should all be doing this. It is something that is done very late in the game, but you can start easy. Start with a spreadsheet, a simple template like this. Jason, thank you for those suggestions. I love them all, and you gave me lots of things to think about. Much appreciated. And that's where we're going to wrap up this section on the White House Cyber, sorry, the White House National Cybersecurity Strategy. Right, this just came out in less than two weeks. Two, less than two weeks ago, this was released. We've got some industry greats who have weighed in on this, and I'm very thankful for their uh, for them weighing in because I could borrow from their thoughts. And why am I? Why did I focus on this today? I'm curious to learn about this and I threw a lot of content into slides and in some cases learning as we go. Uh, I find this is fascinating, very interesting, and very glad that we were able to spend some time today on the White House National Cybersecurity Strategy and I appreciate you joining me as we went through this. Well, we're not done, friends. As we know, this is not where the show ends. This is just one stop in the journey. And I'm going to take a moment to have one more sip of coffee from my advanced cybersecurity mug. Advanced cybersecurity mug, yeah. Advanced cybersecurity center uh, mug. Things have been quiet in the chat today, so I'm going to continue on. Friends are in the chat, have comments, thoughts, inputs, questions, illusions, delusions. Feel free to put them in the chat. And I'll review those from time to time. Oh, I had screens on behind me. They shut off. Well, we're going to get into our final sections of the show. Section I call, What You, what you Listening To? And uh, as some of you know, I cannot go a single conversation without talking about music in one way, shape, or form. I'm a big old music nerd. So I'm going to talk about what I've been listening to. Uh, I've been listening to a new song by the band Octavate. The song is titled Hold My Drink. Why have I been listening to a song by the band Octavate? That is my, I mentioned at the top of my show, my hard rock band. Octavate, we are writing and releasing music pretty regularly, and we released a song a couple weeks ago. Uh, we recorded it two years ago, maybe. Uh, Hold My Drink by Octavate, so I'm listening to my own music. Uh, I'm a strong believer 
of uh, if you don't love the music you're making, then why are you making it? So I do enjoy it. And maybe a few other people do as well. But what else am I listening to? I am listening to the 80s rock band Tesla. Did you ever listen to Tesla? They had, you know, a few really, really great, they're kind of like a, uh, they're a rock band. They were kind of a hard rock band, but I always felt like they had kind of like a Western feel to them, like country Western feel, but hard rock band in the hair band era of the 80s. What uh, I really enjoyed them. They were never like the top of my list, but they did have one album that was incredible. The Five Man Acoustical Jam which they'd done a concert and, you know, get a hard rock band, but they decided to strip down to um, acoustic guitars and, and uh, you know, do their songs in concert. In the era of MTV Unplugged, they decided to do a whole album that way. And uh, it was probably probably their best-selling album. It was kind of like the greatest hits, but unplugged. I find it fun to listen to Tesla while driving in a Tesla. And that's the nerd in me that brings it up to the youngins when they're in the car with me. I still can't figure out how that band did not get the Tesla.com URL. I mean, I could understand why Elon Musk would be like, hey, how about I give you millions of dollars, Tesla, who's no longer making money in their music. But I don't think Tesla, the company, ever owned the Tesla URL. Uh, I'm also listening to the Dave Matthews Band. Uh, They do have some new music out. Uh, but I've actually, it, you know, hearing that they have new music out, it made me want to go back to one of their older albums that I enjoyed. Dave Matthews uh, releases a ton of their concerts as albums. And one of their albums that I loved from way back in the day, the Central Park concert from Central Park, New York. Double disc, very long. It's funny, like Dave Matthews would play a three-hour concert, and in the end you're like, I think they only played like eight songs. So they just go on and on. Uh, I'm a big Dave Matthews fan. Love their music. Last thing I'm listening to, a newish pop artist by the name of Kali Uchi. Kali Uchi. Interesting international pop. And uh, I thank having children in my life for introducing me to things that, uh, well, there really is no radio. I mean, no radio to listen to anymore. Any radio you listen to has like 10 songs on repeat. Taylor Swift and, and a bunch of other things. Um... I should say Taylor Swift and a handful of other things, but not much. So thanks to the kids who find new music on TikTok and educate me, and then I listen to it on Spotify. So Kelly Uchi, new pop artist, um, just you know, pop music, but but new and uh, not on the radio anywhere. So maybe you can check out something new. Well, my friends, that's a wrap. I want to thank you for listening. I'm Sean Valley creator of this show and the music here on cybersecurity growth you can check out more at cybersecuritygrowth.com and cybersecuritygrowth.com slash blog you can find me on the internet everywhere at sean valley or at cybersecurity growth if you like the show please tell your friends if you hate it tell your adversaries uh, please like and subscribe and leave a five-star review. Leave five stars in a review that says something like this. It was a great show. I learned something new about the White House National Cybersecurity Strategy, and it's going to help me in my cybersecurity career. You could you could just, you know, type that in as a review. That'd be fantastic. This week we covered the White House National Cybersecurity Strategy and the subtopics that we got into. What is it? strategy overview, the vision, 
the approach, five steps of the approach, which were to defend critical infrastructure, disrupt and dismantle threat actors, shape market forces to drive security and resilience, invest in a resilient future, and forge international partnerships to pursue shared goals. And then we talked about what do we do about the private sector and what do we actually do with this information. Plans for next week. I'm working on a show about landing a job, talking about resumes, job searches, interview prep, stuff like that. I think it'd be something valuable to our audience, and I have quite a bit of experience in that space. Uh, I'm also working on a password manager show with a guest. We'll see if we get to that. I'm trying to do some scheduling. Uh, I may also do a throwback to uh, my Android hacking days and bring out one of my Android forensics courses, uh, seeing how if relevant that material still is years later. So be something like that next time we get together. This show is live on Twitch weekly, Fridays at 10.30 a.m. EST, 7.30 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3.30 p.m. GMT, and in your pod feeds a few days later. Usually it's weekly. Took a couple weeks off. I want to thank you all for joining. And we will see you next time on Cybersecurity Growth. Bye for now, everyone.